This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is London FinTech Podcast, episode 172, brought to you in association with Smart Pension and the EnlistedBoard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Tony Clark, CEO of NextWave, a next generation consulting firm to discuss the changing world of FS projects. As we heard recently, Lloyds of London has struggled for decades with its IT infrastructure, but with Blueprint 2, as Andy Rea explained, it sounds like they've made a successful and radical change of direction. Back in the day, when I joined the city a millennium ago, Computers were not seen very much at all, and were predominantly for back office and administrative functions. And IT itself was a back office function. Of course, there have been huge advances in technology over the intervening decades, and how technology is used, and so-called digital, is merely the most recent wave in this. In this techophilia world, however, less attention has been given to how one structures and approaches projects in the vast organisations that FS firms have become. Many of them are now well into the hundreds of thousands of employees and implementing successful IT projects in those is a radically different challenge from implementing one in your fintech of a dozen or a hundred or even 400 people. Tony has over 30 years experience of FX projects in the city and thus speaks some deep experience of how all this has changed and how it is continuing to change. His premise is that major FS organisations need essentially a phase change of approach to be at the leading rather than trailing edge of leveraging the digital world. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good morning, Tony. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Hi, Mike. It's uh, great to be here. And in terms of kicking things off, you and I have been very successful in that there is significantly less of us than there was a sort of a year or two ago. Well, in my in my case, um, perhaps a stone or so. So what's that? What's that in modern? What's that in modern money? <laughs> a few few kilos. I'm down ten kilos actually. Yeah, so I think I'm six or seven. But um, I guess lockdown could have gone either way. But in, in our case, um, we've shed a few pounds. Yes, and I think our secret in that because um, we presumably cannot be the only people in the world who, when suddenly sort of confined to our study and sitting motionless day in, day out for a whole year, have not managed to get out and uh, uh, on rainy days. I think the useful tip there for listeners is intermittent fasting that we've both done. Uh, in particular, I'll put a link in the show notes. Dr. Jason Fung, there's a two-minute video by him, is, is super clear on this, in that the old-school mentality of calories in, calories out is pretty much defunct, largely because that considers the human being as an engine. So for example, wood has got calories, but if you and I eat wood, we ain't gonna put any weight on. So it's something more than just calories. And in particular, it's a hormonal thing. And as Jason Fung has made very clear, and many others, but I think he's just one of the best. Diabetes uh, is, is driven by high insulin. And the fact that high insulin and diabetes around the world shows that something's going wrong with people's diets. But insulin is a hormone. The level of your insulin drives whether your body stores the incoming calories as fat or not. If you have high insulin in general, which you probably do if you had a carby diet for, for a long time, perhaps like we have, then you will lay down fat. If you have a low insulin level, 
then you will burn fat. It's, rich, it's literally as simple as that. So uh, uh, in my case, we, um, we skip breakfast and we, we skip booze Monday to Thursday and uh, literally, you know, don't bother at the weekend with this stuff. Uh, and literally, I've lost 10 kilos in a year. I mean, you've done something very similar, haven't you? Yes, yes, I have, Mike. Um, so, you know, I've been an occasional advocate of various diet approaches over the years. I mean, starting with something that was written by a Frenchman called Michel Montignac, which I was attracted to because it was all about steaks and red wine. And uh, there have been various flavours of diets in between. But um, um, it's undoubtedly the major factor. And actually, as we went into lockdown, my wife, who has a habit of sort of cutting through things with a very uh, clear statement, said, just don't have breakfast. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so uh, I thought, well, is that even possible? Um, and then I realised that you can substitute with a couple of strong espressos and, uh, and I'd give it a go. And I only discovered afterwards that it was a thing and it, the thing is intermittent fasting. So uh, this idea of 16-8 um, uh, and, uh, and not eating during the 16 hours, you can achieve that by, by indeed skipping breakfast. So I don't know whether, um, whether the medical community would endorse that approach particularly, but, um, but it actually worked for me. And, uh, and uh, so during lockdown one, um, I, uh, I trimmed down a bit. Excellent. Well, yes, the medical community, well, there isn't such a thing as the medical community as we, as we see on roughly everything at the moment, but Jason Fung is a good example. I mean, all the evidence is precisely along these lines. And I think that when I've spoken to many people say, oh, I couldn't miss breakfast or whatever. Well, I used to be like that as well. I used to also, you know, oh, I can't miss my coffee. But the way to do it is to have your dinner a bit earlier uh, and just have your breakfast late, half an hour later every day. You won't particularly notice. Then after a while, you, you know, you're having your breakfast at 11. You think, oh, forget it. I'll have an early lunch at, at, at 12. So anyway, so that's the, that's the pain-free way of doing it. Now, Having sort of put myself on a level of moral equivalence with you, I, n I now have to sort of step off the pedestal because I still do sort of just sit on my derriere far too much the entire day because it's raining and therefore I can't be bothered to go out. But you've gone a step further and one of your other pro tips for uh, listeners who might be interested is that rather curiously you've employed a sort of a man to come around and shout at you in the morning. Which, if that was all he was doing, was, would be a bit strange, but the, there's more to it, isn't there? Yeah, well, I think you're referring to uh, the early morning gym sessions. That shouting now happens um, over, over an iPad. <laughs> shouting spreads COVID. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, it, we, used to, we used to do this at a very small um, gym around the corner from my house, but uh, three times a week at, uh, at 6am is not everyone's idea of the um, best way to start the day. But uh, I've been doing this for a little while, um, and, uh, and it, does, it just kickstarts body and mind but to the earlier point it doesn't work without the dietary thing so you can you can sort of lift as much weight as you like and it really doesn't make any difference until you um, start looking at what you're eating as well yes a mate of mine some time ago was doing some gig at the bbc and he was cycling from islington to the to to shepherd's bush and back every day hell of a long cycle ride over which period he put on weight indeed yeah it is more than just sort of simple calories in calories out well i think it's it shows because you look <laughs> disgustingly fit and healthy. I mean, I'm very pleased that you're fit and healthy, but I feel sort of uh, uh, rather, rather guilty. Oh, thank that you, Mike. I, I'm not. And in all seriousness, in terms of now having seen the fintech revolution over whatever the last sort of six years uh, in very close detail, but also having seen uh, the world of business over decades, I think that one thing that it's very easy to neglect with the pressures, whether in a small company or a big company, there are, there are always pressures. With the pressures on people, it's very easy to let all this stuff go, which is of course why the likes of you and I needed to lose weight and all that in the first place. And you know, with my obsession about boards these days, you know, if I've got some sort of entrepreneur approaching me to do a gig or something and help them out over the longer term, 
then actually how well they take care of themselves is to me the prime measure. I can think of people in FinTech, not mentioning any names, where because of the pressures, they've eaten too much, they've drunk too much, they haven't exercised. And then, you know, it doesn't really help you digest the stress in a way. And in terms of the old school uh, city, before the days of FinTech, I did a meditation retreat, I think 28 years ago, uh, and there was some um, hotshot uh, derivatives trader on the meditation retreat. He'd made millions in his early, early 20s already. And the pressure got to him. And, you know, I used to eat lots of biscuits in my fixed income meetings. That was my way of coping with stress, which is probably why I got the high instead. Anyway, he's not that amusing. And this chap tried more and more, shall we say, strong uh, methods of dealing with stress. And in the end, injected himself with too much heroin, had a heart attack and found himself from being a hotshot derivatives trader making millions into literally being on a hospital ward at the age of 23, surrounded by a bunch of prisoners. You know, so that is an extreme, that is an extreme case, but it's all the same direction. If you, if you keep overloading yourself with stress and don't somehow digest it, whether it's meditation, whether it's yoga or whatever, then uh, in the end, it's, gonna, it's going to be, it's going to, you're going to be the weak link in your own chain. Yeah, I, I, I can only agree. My, I mean, one of my former bosses used to talk about the lean enterprise, and I think he was talking more about um, efficiency in the business, perhaps. But uh, for us as uh, as humans and uh, and keeping a good body mind balance, super important, especially given that we're all now remote working and reacting to the pandemic. So the themes of resilience and emotional engagement and motivation in this um, world that we find ourselves in now. Um, couldn't be more important actually and I think um, you know, we'll talk a bit about the um, shape of the market and some of the things we're seeing but that's one of the things we talk to our clients about a lot now. Yes and so you, you and I haven't quite uh, well you will have but I haven't uh, conquered the, the mental stamina part of it but I mean I went I did my little shop to Waitrose yesterday which sort of passed my social life yesterday other than seeing Bridget and chatting to the, the checkout girl and I was saying that actually the one thing I miss at the moment is I, I'm used to looking forward to going skiing. And when it's January and February and it's all dragging on, having something to look forward to is really useful. And she was saying, yes, she by now has normally booked her some holiday and she looks forward to it. And now she has nothing to look forward to. So there's all sorts of insidious pressures on us. So we need to get up and shape up. Okay, anyway, so two ideas to the, the listeners there is that Tony and I have found that sort of simply missing breakfast sorts the weight out over time. And I've got chums as well that also tried the sort of the personal trainer thing and, and they swear by it. Two, and one of the things I think it does is that it, it, it passes, you know, you delegate the problem to somebody else. Otherwise, as an individual, you have to use your willpower for all these things. You know, I won't eat breakfast. I won't drink alcohol in the week. I will take exercise. I will grow my business. I will do that. But the willpower is finite. Okay, so talking of bosses, you've had bosses and you've been a boss for quite some time. So briefly then, Tony, what's your career journey that's brought you to where you are today? And then we'll dive into the main course. Thanks, Mike. So uh, in my case, I started out with Accenture actually when it was called Anderson Consulting, so in the in the 90s, and I was there for, for nine years. And Accenture's a, uh, a very well-regarded firm um, as it self-evolved over time. But, uh, you know, I started out um, COBOL programming in boot camp and, and then going to work for one of the uh, very well-known um, UK retail banks. And I, uh, you know, I, I remember being on my first client projects back there on a, on a Greenfield um, technology site which had a, uh, a fully licensed bar on site <laughs> and uh, we'd sometimes lose some of the team because um, lunchtime had um, extended a little bit longer than it needed to. You know, times have changed a bit since, but that was a great grounding for me and uh, and I was there for, for quite some time. I was there for nine years, but then span out and helped to build my first boutique consulting firm. It's a firm called MA Partners and that was a successful journey for nearly 10 years um, and we had, a, we had an exit. Which in passing, talking about amazing how these connections come around, which in passing, I happen to have lunch with one of your chums and uh, provide you with the chairman, actually. 
and this is a, quite some time ago. Indeed, indeed, indeed. A bit of shared history. So I think that's sort of wind forward to just before the financial crash and uh, and uh, we had a successful exit with, with MA 2007 and then briefly were part of a firm that was really doing data science and data engineering and big data, you know, 10 years ahead of um, the rest of the sector really um, getting a hold of the concept as the way we see it now. And th- that firm, um, uh, Detica as was, uh, then became part of BAE Systems, which is a, a huge defence, security and intelligence organisation. And I think they really wanted the spooky side of the business, not the capital markets consulting side of the business. And, and I, there, was a, there was a day, um, a year or two into this, that I discovered that our part of the business was on the bottom branch of the uh, of the org chart, and it was under the submarine division. It was actually the division. <laughs> so that's when I, when I think you know you're under underwater and it's time to do something else. <laughs> I was hoping you're going to tell that story about uh, how your consultancy ended up as part of a submarine division because I don't think it was you, but I bumped into one of your your chums in the city and I remember I said, "How's it going?" He said, "Oh, it's great." He said, "We're part of the submarine division." <laughs> yes, fantastic. So, at which point, uh, with the market where it was at the time, the commercial part of that business was pretty much hived down, and, and we spun out and created something called Crossbridge Consulting, which I always liked the name because it was uh, we always talked about having one foot in business, one foot in technology, and I think this plays to you know, what we're doing now and what we're seeing in the market. Um, consulting as was, it was always technology enabled at some level, and Accenture have been um, obviously very uh, adept at uh, leading the charge on this. So for, at Crossbridge, uh, we worked with quite a number of, uh, of big brand tier one banks and financial services firms. It's That's always been my sector. and. That firm was a boutique, a successful boutique, through to 2015, and we had another exit. So uh, Crossbridge was acquired, and I spent the last five years really in much more of a scale-up, which was running the UK uh, regional business for a firm called Synochron. Former brand partners of the, the London FinTech podcast, of course. You can see there's a few touch points here. And the Synochron focus is more overtly, it's a bigger enterprise, 10,000 heads across 19 countries, but it's much more overtly progressive tech and digital. So I sort of grew up being a techno-functional business and technology consultancy and then spent the last five years really focusing on enterprise teams and enterprise solutions with a strong focus on, on new technology and enterprise uh, technology build. Okay, well, we'll come on to the, the most recent chapter in your story a little bit in the dessert course. You're still very close to, to Cinequan, who I think are uh, one of your partners at the moment. You can tell us a little bit about more about next way. But let's take a step back. And given that you've described to us the sort of various structures you've been in over the last 30 years, one way or another, man and boy, you've been deeply involved in FS projects uh, and therefore seen them quite a lot. Now, I think it might be quite helpful, even for the techies, the, the younger techies who don't have the perspective, but for people who aren't in tech or in projects in the city, if we start off this, by a little bit of a, a brief history of the, the decades that I've been talking about, from the sort of COBOL programmers of the sort of 60s and 70s, uh, through the 80s and the 90s and noughties, sort of briefly about how IT was seen and, and how projects were structured. So give us a little bit of background to, to then examining in more detail what the current challenges are, what you see the solutions being and, and what the future is. But let, let, let's give a little bit of sort of background and context to all this. Sure. And I think to answer that one, Mike, it's important just to understand the environment we're operating in. So when I talk about um, financial services clients, we're talking about, uh, in my case anyway, uh, major banks, um, buy-side organisations, asset and wealth managers, and uh, infrastructure, the exchanges, and other service providers in the sector. So it's pretty broad financial services, but most of what I've done is with, is with banks, and a lot of that's been in the capital market space. And some of those firms are, um, are, are no longer around. So um, I remember doing a startup. In 
investment bank that was born out of the ashes of Bearings Bank and uh, worked for firms like Bear Stearns along the way. A lot of things have changed and some of those um, some of those companies no longer around. One thing is very true is that the sector is continually reinventing itself, as we can see, and I think the pace of that reinvention is only only accelerating. So to your question anyway, um, sort of history of FS projects, um, uh, I'll see if I can do that in sort of uh, less than two minutes. <laughs> As I said, in my case, I started out COBOL programming. And for those who know the technology stacks, I mean, they were talking about mainframe computers and DB2 databases, languages like COBOL. And the, the new thing at the time was this thing called client server. And the projects were all very lengthy, big program initiatives in a, in a waterfall linear delivery model. And you sort of wind forward through um, the uh, technology architecture evolution and the evolution of the enabling infrastructure that's out there. You know, I'm skipping a few chapters, but I think what's interesting is uh, the foundation of where we find ourselves now, which is something that's been written up quite quite accurately, I think, as um, social mobile analytics and cloud, which is really the uh, sort of cornerstones of the modern technology environment and the world that we're now operating in. Pressing pause there and, and just rewinding over one thing, which I think is, you know, just to, to pick up my model of phase change, which I think is quite relevant for the, for the phase change. You, you talk about the original sort of waterfall methodology, or, or as I see it, command and control kind of army type approach. You know, you've, you've got a project manager and they work out plans and they delegate and they delegate and they delegate, that model. The one you skipped over, which I think is quite nice because that's a phase change in itself and, and predates all this sort of digitally cloudy stuff, is the whole sort of agile rapid development-y stuff, which, which is a different way of, of seeing projects. And from what little I've seen from the outside or anecdotes I've heard, that can work very well in certain sort of scales and is, is used uh, tremendously. But I'm not entirely sure that it always works on a massive scale because you can't sort of rewind the mistakes you've made. Yes, indeed. Agile and DevOps are the default sort of modus operandi for our clients now. And sorry, DevOps meaning? Development operations, continuous build and automation in the software lifecycle. But how well they've landed in the massive um, FS institutions is, 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 is an interesting question. I mean, there's a couple of things. I mean, I had one client a few years ago who said, uh, called me up and said, we've just had a, a message from the top and uh, all the senior directors in our part of the business, we've all been told we're product owners. And he said, what is that? What is a product owner? <laughs> so you have that debate. And then, and then thinking about um, the cadence of, uh, of digital products and service delivery, moving from waterfall to, as you said, agile, which is iterative and sprint based and you cut it into small pieces and uh, course correction as you go. How do you marry that with an annual planning cycle that tends to set budgets on a yearly basis and is used to um, you know, major releases yearly or if you're lucky, um, half yearly or quarterly release cycles. So there's a whole uh, new way of working that needs to cascade across the organization. And if you look in the middle of what's happened with all of that, you know, in the sort of journey from as it was back then to where we find ourselves now, we've also got um, the question of offshoring and the advent of open source and a whole plethora of new tools which are used to uh, to do modern software development and product delivery and also um, to, to run those modern enterprises on. So, you know, the environment is, is completely changed. So, I mean, I'm not uh, anywhere near like as close to it as you. However, over the last couple of decades, I have myself been involved in this, and notably reforming and re restoring lands banks and uh, whole global risk systems and, and, and stuff like that, as, as well as the fact that actually, in terms of other touch points, you and I found us 
themselves in the same organisation in Canary Wharf on, on completely different things at the same time by uh, chance. And I think one of the things which is the kind of theme behind my curiosity to, to, to hear you explain more about this is that it just seems to me from the outside, and again, there is some benefit from the sort of the, uh, the older, older and wiser perspective, which is that over the past few te- decades, technologies have just absolutely sort of cascaded out all over us. You know, it's, it's been the best time to be in IT if you like bright, new, sexy, shiny things and languages and everything. Just tons of that stuff. But as you were saying about, you know, the chap in the organisation says, someone just told me I'm now a product owner or whatever, but what on earth is one of them? What has lagged behind, and this may well lead into your sort of next wave thing later, is that the human beings, sort of mini societies in organisations, ability to adapt and reform their management structures and operational structures has really been struggling to keep pace. And so presumably, in a sense, the quote's real problem is not that new technologies have come. If all the things that we've spoken about had come once every 50 years, there'd be plenty of time to digest, oh, I don't know, laptops. Plenty of time to digest cloud. But actually, these things have just flooded out. And so presumably, in terms of the challenges that this creates, from your perspective, one of the main challenges is not to do with the technology per se, is not to do with the new Lego box, but is to do with the organisations. How do we handle these millions of Lego blocks that have suddenly been thrown at us? It's like when you're a kid. When you're a kid, if you decide your green blocks and your red blocks and your mum buys you a blue block for Christmas, you can integrate it. But then somebody suddenly throws you a thousand bits. You end up going, what? Well, Mike, I couldn't agree more, but I think it's actually more to do with the changing shape of the market. So it's not just that there's a, you know, more um, toys in the toolbox. It's actually the market, right? And, and the, I saw surveys um, a couple of years back that said 73% of millennials don't recognise themselves in the adverts from financial services companies. And it's like, okay, so there's a whole generation of consumer that you might be filtering based on demographic, but actually they identify with something completely different, which is generally, you know, purpose and passions and um and, and their social network. And the customer base indeed has moved to social. So we come from a world where your customers were a linear list of, uh, of uh, if it's B2B firms that you reach out to and perhaps some more of a one-to-one or a broadcast advertising model where you're reaching out to customers. And actually that that market is now an ecosystem so they all talk to each other on social forums and they're all influencing each other and you have to take a networked approach to touching your customers and then the point that you touched on which is the um the enabling technology and business models you know back in the day back in my COBOL days the board would set um, a direction for the business and choose a strategy and tell the cio to go and build it and it was a bit transactional in that sense now it's almost the other way around. It's certainly, a, it's certainly a, a loop because if you're not aware of the technology enablers and what you can do with some of the um, you know, contextual data technology or low-code technology or some of the things that are now available, then you'll, you'll miss a whole business mo- model and a whole opportunity. So the whole business is much more tech enabled and, and needs to be tech aware. We've, we've written pieces about you know, the, the risk professional of the future or the finance professional of the future. And it's interesting to reflect on the skills for that job 
you know, when we were growing up versus what the skills are now. And if you scratch the surface of most of the progressive financial services firms, you'll find that there's a whole, a whole cadres of staff who are now all learning to Python program. And, you know, and it's, uh, you know, it's no longer about Excel. It's, it's actually being able to code is actually um, becoming, um, it's not mandatory, but, but it's important. Yes, I stand corrected. I've been overly focusing, uh, you're quite right, on just the sort of the new Lego blocks and the new toys that are coming along for the IT department to play with. But actually, to take the opposite approach uh, and to expand from what you're saying, the challenge for large organisations in implementing their projects, and also for small organisations or growing organisations in the middle, is that everything has changed. Yes. As you say, their customers have changed, their competitors have changed, their suppliers have changed. And in terms of the podcast, I do remember this thing called fintech. Those can be competitors, they can be suppliers, they can be customers, and indeed, they can be all three in the same organisation. Yeah. of the large organisations. So one of the challenges is not just the internal organisation of quotes an IT project or some sense of distributing that out so people do sort of more than Excel on, the, on their little sort of uh, desktop machine, but it's really a question of how on earth do you operate in this massively confusing ecosystem? And not just how do you bloody survive without sort of going under for the third time and drowning, but how do you leverage? How do you profit? If I suddenly get transported into, I don't know, being CIO or COO of some sort of vast mega bank, then I'd have to sit down and scratch my head for a little bit thinking, blimey, oh, the last, last six odd years, I spoke to a hell of a lot of good companies out there. How? I don't know. How, how on earth would I work with all them? How does my organisation work with all them as well? It, it, it's, a hell, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a multidimensional problem. It's almost impossible to sort of analyse. It certainly is. And we think of um, you know, business agility being enabled by the technology agility and just navigating that whole sort of multidimensional space. I mean, you talked about um, you know, competitors who might now be partners. There's a great story I remember of a property-backed lender, LendInvest, who started out as a little startup um, doing that and then wind forward. They were seen as an upstart and potentially a threat to the big banks. And then a couple of years later, you learn that um, HBC and Goldman Sachs had given them hundreds of millions of, of, of dollars to lend on their behalf as a distribution partner. So that was a model that completely turned on its head. But, you know, just switching back to your question about challenges, I think it's of speed to market has never been more important. So the pivot to digital off the back of the pandemic has just accelerated everything. So that was happening anyway. Every firm that we spoke to is on a digital transformation journey. That new dynamic in the market, the new customer base who will actually consciously go out of their way not to talk to a call center because they'd rather do have a digital experience. There's only one way of travel with that. So how do you adapt to a rapidly changing market and bring new products to market? So that's what, sort of challenge number one. Are there enabling technologies that let you do things quicker? Then it's how do you navigate that whole ecosystem of enabling fintechs and regtechs because there's thousands of them out there. You know, I remember trade shows a few years back where there were five or six competing firms who all come up with passport scanning for KYC and you thought, well, there's a sort of a widget that um, adds some value, but how does that fit into a bigger enterprise? But today, those platform technologies and component technologies, um, several of them have, have, have matured, you know, way beyond those early days and are now being, um, being plugged in as enablers for uh, new products and services by the tier one firms. And that, that's really where we're focusing. Our um, consultancy and orchestration focus is really around some of those uh, maturing component technologies. And once you've chosen sort of what your strategy is and what you're going to plug in so you've navigated where you get business value and business outcomes from those pieces of the puzzle it's like how do you onboard your 
innovation partners, your part, your platform and uh, and services partners at digital pace because the uh, the enterprise as was. I mean, certainly in our experience, it's not set up for that, right? I've got clients who've actually create, consciously created fintech and partnership procurement roles for the purpose of insourcing these sort of services at anything like the sort of speed that they that they would like to be adopted. But the, the legacy processes around some of that supplier onboarding um, remain in very many uh, firms. And and you can have an ambition to do something, but it just gets stuck in the it gets stuck in the logistics and the uh, and, and the contractuals. Right. Okay. So look, so it's even more vastly of a headache than I'd sort of previously conceived it of. So in terms of a Gedanken, I go to bed as normal this evening and uh, a Kafka novel strikes. And if I wake up tomorrow as a beetle, uh, I'll give you a call. You'll hear click, 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 click over the phone. You'll think, what's Mike saying? Click, click, click. Uh, and I will have a problem because I will be a beetle. But at least it will be a relatively straightforward problem that, ah, oh, this is life as a beetle and a beetle's life is quite simple. But in an alternative universe where Kafka rewrites his novel and I wake up tomorrow as a CIO of, of Megabank, I've got far more problems and I call you and this time I don't go click, click, click because I can still speak. And I say, Tony, you know, we recorded that podcast yesterday and I was listening to you and I thought, blimey, there's a million more headaches than I, than I realised. <laughs> um, uh, what are you doing this afternoon? Can you, can you pop around and pop around and see me? I, I've got mega budget, so, uh, you know, I, I can make it worth your while and that kind of stuff. We can't, in the space of a, of a few minutes, lay out the solution to all of these multidimensional aspects of how business in its entirety has got to change as a result of digital. But if you're to come around and see me tomorrow afternoon and say, well, actually, look, I think there are two key themes here, Mike, you need to focus on and doing things differently. What would those be? What are some of the simple solutions? I'm not telling, asking you how to reform the entire megabank uh, overnight or something, but what can be done? What is the phase change that's required? Well, first up, um, I think finding guidance and advisory that can help um, uh, navigate through all the things that we've been talking about. So I've done that. I've, call, I've called you. So I now want the gu guidance and the advisory. <laughs> okay. So I think um, firms need to think about the uh, the destination and, uh, and and what the enabling architecture might be for that. So at a uh, at a platform level, it's about it's about data access and data leverage. It's about APIs. It's about uh, moving to cloud. It's about ingesting the right fintechs and regtech firms. So uh, I don't. So with your with your trusted advisor, finding the right component parts and and drawing out a target model to get there and that can be consciously done that can be a process of uh, of sitting down and blueprinting and uh, and building a roadmap and uh, and then you also need to look um look at look at the um the organization because we touched on this you know the advent of enabling technologies and, and new future architectures and new ways of working um, this is all about um the cultural change the upskilling the talent programs and you know, if you can harness the organisation and get everyone pointing in the same direction with the same excitement and motivation about um, about what you're building, then that that is an that is an essential ingredient to making progress um, with the with the overall um, sort of re-architecture and transformation ambition, if you will. So I think you need to look at it um, at, a, at a business and technology operating model and component perspective um, with, with a uh, target in mind. But you also need to look at the organisation. And you know, some of the work we're doing with clients is actually around 
coaching for successful transformation and team performance and remote engagement. The stats bear out that when you actually place a conscious focus on things like that, um, resilience and engagement, that uh, it has a cascade effect into um, into the success of your um, of your delivery initiatives and the overall um, health of the business. Excellent. Okay. Well, as I haven't woken up as either a Beatle or a CIO, that all sounded uh, brilliant, but I, I hope there isn't an exam at the end because I won't be able to remember it all. But from a more sort of chairman-like perspective, it seems to me that my key takeaway from this is, is that if I do wake up as a CIO tomorrow, then I do need to speak to two or three potential trusted partners. It's a bit like needing a, a mountain guide in some complex mountain range. Going back to the changes over the last 35 years plus, back in the day, IT projects were done by the IT department, 100% of whom were sort of permanent employees of the organisation. And in, in a fairly finite world, that worked as well as it needed to work for the, the time. But these days, I can certainly see in listening to you that one of the things that one needs is sort of grey hair or no hairy people who have got decades experience and seen a number of organisations. I think the one thing I should not try and do as a CIO is reinvent the wheel, is solve all the problems for myself, but is actually to try and find a guide slash guides to help me navigate through this landscape. So I think for me that's the key takeaway. So maybe that's a good point because presumably you're going to explain how next wave is precisely the guide or guides in this com uh, complex uh, environment. I, uh, I don't know, but you, as you've uh, just created this business a, a year or so ago, I presume that this is all part of your thinking. But before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all the listeners out there, my brand partner for the podcast, Smart Pension, who are fast, secure and free. Check out their UK workplace pensions at autoenrolment.co.uk. The unlistedboard.com resources to help you start making your board an engine of growth today. And just to reiterate my shout out from the last episode on something completely different, but the shout out survives. I'm very keen to do what little I can to try and make the world a better place in the first quarter, given all the pressures we're under. And I set up a clarity.fm line. Uh, so it's clarity.fm slash Mike Balliman slash LFP. And within reason, listeners who want 30 minutes free mentoring in the first quarter of this year on getting from where you are to having a more entrepreneurial board or understanding more about FS or fintech or C-suite mentoring or for this purposes, business mentoring. Any of you, please do reach out to me at uh, clarity.fm slash Mike Balliman slash LFP. And uh, I shall give you 30 minutes of, uh, of trying to give you some helpful advice and uh, thereby, uh, hopefully by the end of the quarter, having helped uh, the odd listener on their career journey themselves. So, Tony, passing over to you about Next Wave and where you are now and where you're going in, in, the, in the future, what uh, takeaways do you want to give the listeners? We've moved from a market of open banking to open finance and really open everything, which I think is a great theme. And, and so Next Wave is all about being a connected consultancy and joining the dots for our clients so that they can get business advantage from what's going on in the, uh, in the tech and the, uh, and the FS evolution. And uh, it's all about speed. It's all about platform ecosystems. I, I, I've seen research that suggests that um, average tier one bank is using two to 300 fintech services or platforms currently, that by 2023, there'll be 500 million digital apps out there in the world, which is as much as the same, same amount was developed in, in the entirety of the last 40 years. So there aren't even enough developers in the world to build that many apps. So then you start thinking about things like low code, which is really Lego bricks, assembling applications from pre-built widgets and components. Um, so you don't have to go back to writing um, thousands of lines of code from scratch to build enterprise applications. So, you know, 
what's the future going to look like? I think low code will go mainstream. I think contextual data intelligence, which is something that we work very closely with one of our, our partners, uh, Quantex, on, will also become much more of a thing. The power of networking data and using that to, to drive business intelligence and insight it's already horizontal across um, progressive firms, but that, uh, that's only uh, going to continue. And I think this connected consulting model is going to be something that's already capturing a lot of interest. It's going to be something that's actually um, going to be increasingly adopted to help clients um, deliver on their, uh, on their business objectives. So I think that's my sort of perspective on the future. Mike, if I was going to leave you with sort of two or three things for the listeners, if you're struggling with how do I get business outcomes from new technology faster, cheaper and better, we'd love to share some perspectives on that. But your point about grey hairs, our whole positioning is really putting transformational tech in the hands of experienced industry experts. And there aren't many firms that are putting that front and centre. There's a lot of uh, uh, traditional firms that are consulting organisations who've got um, that focus on the periphery. But really, this is all, all that Next Wave is all about. And I'd say don't neglect engagement, team performance and the, and the ways of working. Those cultural factors really are the enablers. Um, we'd love to hear from anyone who, who want to uh, either talk about some of the business solutions that we're now developing or perhaps some the navigational aspects of uh, where do I go from here. And how do people find NextWave or reach out to you? Well, nxwave.com or on LinkedIn. nxwave.com and Tony Clark on LinkedIn. Right. OK, so I think that's been really useful. Tony, um, as I started the uh, introduction with uh, looking back a few decades, looking back a few decades, almost four now, time goes by. I started my, uh, my life in a uh, software engineering firm uh, and compilers and that kind of stuff back in 1983. And um, I have seemed to have stumbled and done some of the th right things in my life by mistake, of course. And, and one of the good things I seem to have done is actually to have got out of technology because it was nice and simple back in the day. So, so a bearer of small brain like me could cope with it, but it's now hellishly complex. And uh, as I said before, one of the things I get from, from talking to you is that in a hellishly complex environment, you need a guide, whether it is you helping large projects or on the difficulties of, of dealing with boards and something like that with me. And, and one of the things about the, the modern world is leveraging the experience and knowledge of people who have got a lot of experience in these environments uh, and thereby saving you a hell of a lot of time. So that's very fascinating and I wish you every success in the future. Thank you very much, Mike. Thanks for listening. If you have any challenges or needs with your unlisted company board, get in touch with me at mike at londonfintechpodcast.com. Sitting in a vendor all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride Come away from the city But with the tarmac so dead And the people so sad Come away from the city But with the faces so grey With the pain of the everyday
the mountains and the trees. Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fade in between the earth and the sky. Kiss the city goodbye. Wave the city goodbye. Wave the city goodbye. Watch the firelight dance with me. 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 Watch the firelight dance.